We're in Gather, Grow, Go, and today we're talking about going. And I'm going to bring up our mission statement to start. Um, as I was looking and examining our mission statement this week, I could not help but think about an old story, an opportunity where I first got to go uh, in the name of Jesus. Do we have that? We'll bring it up. Okay, our mission statement says, doing whatever it takes to develop disciples of Jesus Christ who gather, grow, and go. And we'll get to going in a moment, but doing whatever it takes. I remember in my first church in Alabama, I was serving and I was asked to lead a trip to the Dominican Republic. And now I grew up in Orlando, so I grew up around Dominican culture, so I knew it pretty well. I knew a lot of Dominican families, so I had a pretty good understanding of Dominican culture. But I was asked to lead a team from Alabama to the Dominican Republic. And we did some cultural training, we did some prep, we had a lot of team meetings before we went, a lot of prayer, a lot of bathed in prayer. And I had one member of this team, and Heather already knows where I'm going, because she was on this trip with me. I had one member of my team who was a lady in her 70s, and her name was Nelda. And Nelda had an accent, uh, just a Southern draw as rich as you could imagine. When she'd introduce herself, she'd say, hola, y'all. And I said, okay, Nelda, we're going to go to the Dominican together and you're going to be culturally relevant. And so Nelda had an idea because she heard that we were teaching children English and we got opportunity to go into the schools. We we're going to be teaching English and sharing the gospel in the schools there, and she had on her mind that the best way to share the gospel with these children was going to be through a felt board. And it, she had a massive felt board, about six feet tall, and she was going to take those figures on the felt board. Anyone know what a felt board is? Don't talk about, okay. She was going to share the gospel with that felt board. And I told her, I said, Nelda, while I love the felt board, I specifically love your felt board because it's so big. The thing is, it's going to be really hard to get on the plane. And we already have material that is, uh, it's in Spanish, it's culturally relevant, it's lively, it's like caricature, caricatures that are as, as impressive as Disney characters. So I'm going to need you to leave your felt board at home and we're going to take this and utilize this all week as we go. Isn't that exciting? Of course, Nelda wasn't too excited about that, but when I got to the airport, Nelda had listened and there was no six foot felt board. So I was like, we're winning, okay? We're winning. We're going to make it to the Dominican and we're going to share. Well, I had in our culture training taught them a few phrases in Spanish just so they could understand how to introduce themselves, maybe know how to ask how to find a bathroom, whatever. And it was Nelda's day to teach. It was about the third day into our trip, and the next day was going to be heavy up, just counseling and responding to the children and meeting their needs, sharing the gospel, and hopefully counseling them toward decisions in Jesus. But Nelda was up first. And I walked into the classroom after dealing with some things outside with the team, and Nelda's in front of the class, and I hear, hola, y'all, me llamo es Nelda. And I went, oh my God. Every, every child's eyes were like saucers, like yours, just like they had no idea who this was. And sure enough, I don't know how it made it or where it was, but, but standing behind her is a six foot felt board ready to go. And she had gotten that thing there and she was sharing the gospel, doing exactly what I asked her not to. And she didn't notice, but all the children, because every time she talked, that draw was so thick 
they're doing this and, and she didn't see it. What they were doing was they only recognized that draw with cowboys. So they were doing 10 gallon hats on their heads. Like she's a cowboy. And, and they thought that all Americans lived in New York city. So they're looking at her going, I don't know. Are you American? Cause you don't sound New Yorker. That next day we got to come together with the children, walking through the caricatures that I told Nelda about. We saw many, many children come to Christ and it was a really successful trip. And I was able to look at her. I said, you know what, Nelda, I don't know how it got here, but maybe your felt board planted a seed and, and maybe, maybe that helped till the ground a little bit for the results. And she turned to me and I'm 70, turned to me and said, Justin, I'm not so sure. I said, why is that? She goes, you begged me not to bring that. And I just couldn't get around it. I needed to do it my way. Today, we saw all these results with using the very same thing that the team had all agreed on, the missionaries here knew about. And I went around and did it my way. And I'm not sure that it planted the seed. All I know is this, that culturally, I wasn't prepared for this even though you tried to train us. And I had to think completely differently to get the results that the gospel was looking to advance. And I needed to do it the way of my team. I kind of went my own way. I wasn't doing whatever it takes. I was doing whatever I wanted. And yeah, we got results, but next time, felt bored staying at home. So I slapped her five. I said, you have, to, you have to understand, you are the biggest win of this mission trip for me. She goes, why is that? I said, because someone who is in their 70s, who'd be humble and teachable like that is incredibly impressive. I hope I'm that humble and teachable in my 70s as you have been. Amen? So the point of gathering is that we would spur one another on to love and good deeds. It's the place where we come together as a church and we're made aware of the changes in our lives that need to be made. It's the change that, that moves us from selfishness to selflessness as we walk in this new way in Jesus. The point of growing, we've called it sanctification for, for so long, is to develop healthy disciplines that become a rhythm in our lives that leads to said needed change. It is embracing the abundant life that Jesus promised to us, turning our back on the old ways that led to death in our old ways so that we could look and become more like him and less like ourselves in this new way in Jesus. And today the point of going is that others can also be made aware that they too can have said change, that they can have hope, that they can have life. It's where people like us who know the gospel and have trusted the gospel and had it change our lives, tell others of the freedom that's available to them, the freedom that we found in this new way of living in Jesus and that they too can have it. And that's where we pick up today because the truth is how many of you have experienced that not everyone today is free in Jesus? Okay? Not everyone has the hope that we do in Christ. Many, in fact, the moral majority of the world is lost and live solely for themselves, insatiably for themselves. And Hebrews 10 speaks to these types of people and he speaks to the fate that awaits them. How many of you were once just like this? And how many are grateful that Jesus changed that for you? 
Amen. So I'm going to ask you to stand as we read through Hebrews 10. A few verses to stick with me, but we're going to start in Hebrews 10 on the back half. Verse 25, it says this. But encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment, of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who has rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who's trampled the Son of God underfoot, who's treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, It is mine to avenge, and I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. Remember, those earlier days after you'd received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering, sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. And other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what has been promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and he will not delay. And but my righteous one will live by faith. And I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for salvation in his name. We thank you for the scriptures that reveal the truth of a life that is different than the world. We ask that you'd speak to us in Jesus' name, amen. Our first point today is this. We go because we're saved. We go because we are saved. There are, there's one audience here that, that the Hebrews author is speaking to, but it's really divided into two different types of Hebrews. Talked about them a little last week, but let me, let me take it a further. I want you to know the reason the book of Hebrews is important to us is because it reflects the world at large as Jesus sees it. Two-thirds of the, the audience that he's writing to are those that were intellectually convinced that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah, but they had never placed their faith in him. They had never truly trusted him. So when they had the opportunity, while they may have been intellectually convinced, they knew of Jesus and had admitted that in an, ocean, an emotional response towards him, they trusted in their minds. They knew that he was it. However, they never trusted at the core of who they were. So at first blush, they went straight back to practicing practices in their old ritual, in the law, that was only supposed to be a shadow of the good things to come. In Jesus, the law and the prophets, it says, was fulfilled. He didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And so the Hebrews author is challenging all of those who are listening, all of the 100% of the Hebrews, to Follow Jesus and trust in that which you've been intellectually convinced. Make that heart knowledge, yada that, like let it, like know it, like Adam knew Eve at the core of who he was, but two thirds of which would not. And they were never truly saved. Two thirds would turn right back to the old practices that, by the way, I need to remind us that within 70 years of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, you need to understand the temple was torn down never to be rebuilt. 
And so the temple was destroyed, thus the Holy of Holies with it. The high priest went away and so did annual sacrifice of blood atonement for the sins of the people. So at, within 70 years of Jesus coming, all of that and that which was necessary for annual atonement by blood to be a biblical Jew at Yom Kippur went away. Why do you think it went away? Because I believe there's a sovereign God who loves these people as much more than you and I have even dreamt. And he took, all the way, he took away all the things that could have stood in the way. He says, there's no longer a sacrifices for those sins. That's what he's talking about. That's gone. It's gone. So why are you continuing to try to live in the old way when you have the freedom to walk in the new? The third, the other third of the, the audience that he's listening to and he's listing here, that third, they were legitimate converts. They in their heart and minds had trusted Jesus at their core. They weren't the most educated. They weren't the most bright. In fact, the church, the, the Bible reveals that they were quite the opposite. These were a people who weren't perfect. How many of you are grateful that God doesn't require perfection? Don't need that, otherwise wouldn't need Jesus. But they were the people who purely followed Jesus like children, like a pedo, like an infant. The Bible says that this believer was known by their fruit and by their love for one another. The fruit was born out of a submission to the spirit of God and showed itself in their humility and their teachability, much like Nelda. This is actually how the believer signifies themselves and distinguishes themselves from the rest of the world by their love and their fruit. In Matthew 7, verse 13 through 14, it says this, Jesus' words, enter through the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Jesus is talking to a Hebrew audience where two-thirds are never going to come to him. They're not going to trust. They're going to trust more in their old life than they are in him. He's talking to the, minor, the minority, the third, where he's going, stay, remain, walk in him, trust that which you've been convinced of and walk in it. And that will affect the world. When you look at the world today and you, look at, you listen to Jesus' words, he's saying to all of us, the minority are those who are truly in me. And I trust that they, if they'll purely devote themselves to me, can change and affect the world, but the vast majority, and I think it's been our experience, the vast majority do not trust Jesus, amen? And are not in him. And they are suffering today and they will suffer, he says. In the church, we have a second place of signification. Uh, we talked about the Lord's Supper. We've talked about the way that we steward our resources to advance the gospel. But there's another place where we celebrate an ordinance that signifies our life is in him, and that is through baptism. You see, baptism, in scripturally, uses the word baptizo, which is to immerse or to dip in the New Testament. Jesus was dipped, immersed completely as a picture of how we're to be baptized. There's been a lot of debate on this for centuries, but most missionaries that led to you and I being here were those that became scripturally convinced that it was solely a symbol that had to come after salvation, that it was to be on the profession of a believer, that one who was a disciple who had come to Christ, that they would lay their life down in the water representing a grave. 
that they were to lay their life down and to raise just like Jesus was raised from the grave by the power of the spirit in his resurrection, that we are resurrected out of that water unto new life in Jesus. And our lives are mostly supposed to reflect him and no longer our old ways. That we are saying that we signify in front of the body and we ask for them to hold us accountable that we walk like this and we don't go back here. This is what baptism is. It took one time for Jesus to redeem all mankind on the cross, one time for him to raise from the dead and one time to leave that grave empty and ascend to go back to the Father. So it takes us one time to signify that our heart belongs to him through baptism, but it has to be in order. You can't show the symbol of an outward expression and a commitment to him if there's been no inward change. It would make no sense for one of the two thirds to show themselves true in baptism. Why? Because there had been no inward change. Their heart didn't belong to him. They were mentally convinced, but they were not trusting in their heart. So you could put them in the water. You could even put them all the way under the water and you could baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, as Matthew 28 says. But you'd just be getting them wet because there's no expression of an inward change that has happened. Their heart doesn't belong to him. And so they can't show that symbolically to anyone else. Matthew 28, the great commission, Jesus words to us. Then Jesus came to them after the resurrection and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Matthew 28 says, go and make disciples and baptize them. We go because Jesus commanded in the Great Commission that we do so, and one of the signifiers publicly is that we are to be baptized after regeneration has happened in our heart, after our heart becomes his, after we're part of that one third, we give our lives, I'm just using one third in quotations, the minority. We show that our lives are signified with him and we want to be recognized as his and not that old life publicly with others. I'll give you an example. You've probably heard this before, but I want to expound and be very clear on why we celebrate the ordinance of baptism the way that we do. I wear a wedding band. It represents a day that I committed my life to the woman that I love. But you know what? I fell in love with her before I stood up and made a promise to her. And maybe that happened to you. And you know, to be honest, if I woke up tomorrow and this was not attached to me, do you think I would automatically forget that I'm married to Heather? No, because I remember that day and I know who my heart belongs to. I know those things inwardly, in my mind and heart. I know who I think about. I know who I want to spend my life with and made a promise to. This is for you. It's not for me. This is for you. It's so that you know that my heart is taken and it belongs to someone else. And I am not, I am not my own. I am, I'm one half of another thing that my heart belongs to someone. That's what baptism is. Baptism is an expression outwardly that your heart belongs to him. And it cannot happen if your heart's not been given to him. So it comes after. It's a symbol that shows my heart is his and I wanna be known and identified with him so I cannot do that before I trust my heart to him. Hello? And so it is a sign for everyone else. 
You know what has happened in your mind and heart when it has been devoted to Jesus, but the baptism is to show outwardly for everyone else that that is true. And you're willing to go through that step to signify that. I didn't know the importance of that until I had someone walk me through it because I, as a child, had been christened. And I thought that I had been baptized. And it wasn't until I, I was walked through the scriptures and by my mentor, I came to a place of true conviction on my heart, not because of what he was convincing me of, but because of scriptures and what the spirit of God was convincing me of, that I needed to put my baptism in order, that I needed to show that my heart belonged to him because as a child, my heart didn't belong to Jesus. I had not made that conscious decision. Hello? Not, I made the conscious decision to give my heart to Heather. I made the conscious decision to put this on. I made the conscious decision to give my heart to Jesus. I made the conscious decision to walk into the, the baptistry out of obedience to show that my life was no longer mine and I come out to live for him. Amen? This signifies that we are his. Baptism is a one-time symbol. And once it's in order, after salvation, it can be a powerful thing in the lives of other people. How many of you have been really encouraged by watching a baptism service and someone step into obedience? But the reality is, baptism was uh, a one-time symbol, once. What is our daily practice? What about after that? Well, we are to love and to live like him. We're to share the gospel by our lives, earning the right to speak with our mouths. The reality is we've all been tempted. We've all been tempted to go back to our old ways even after we have signified our life with him inwardly and shown that outwardly. But how many were tempted to go back to your selfish ways at least once since you've made some of those steps in your life? Just, just once, maybe even yesterday or this morning. For them, for the Hebrew, it was a temptation to return to the law. But for us as Gentiles, it's a temptation to return to lawlessness or selfishness. Jesus gave us everyone a charge. His charge was for us to go. Baptism may be that one-time ordinance that we utilize to show our heart is his here within the church, but evangelism is the daily practice of living, loving, and sharing the gospel before our fellow man of whom most are lost and suffering. That's my next point. We go because they suffer. How many of you were once suffering apart from Jesus because you lived in a cold and skeptical and harsh world. Verse 27 says of Hebrews 10, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and the raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Here's the thing. It's more than just what awaits them. How many of you recognize that loving anyone else above ourselves is starkly opposite to anything that this broken and skeptical world has taught us. How many of you know that it's all about you is what the world has taught you? That, well, I mean, let's just look at average day marketing. Burger King, you can what? Have it your way. Nike, just, that's right. It's all about you. Everything about you, that's the focus. But that's not the way of Jesus. 
The way of Jesus is starkly opposite. It is putting others' needs above yourself. It's not about having your way. It's about doing whatever it takes that they might know me. We must be compassionate for those who are lost because we know we've been, what we've been saved from. We know where we once were and how we were brought out of that selfish thinking. How many of you are grateful that God was gracious enough, as selfish as you were, to still extend love to you and draw you out of that? A life enslaved where you could only think about yourself and you had an insatiable desire to fill your wants and needs. Too often, we only look at the fact that the lost will suffer an eternity one day. So we offer Jesus his fire insurance, but that assumes that they're not suffering right now. Hello? That assumes that they somehow, out of like everyone you know, unlike you, figured out the key to happiness apart from Jesus and they're good. Is that what the world has taught us? No, how many, how many testimonies? Look at Kanye West. How many testimonies are money, status, fame? It wasn't enough. Nothing fulfilled this hole that is in me. I can't aspire fast enough and I can't aspire far enough. Nothing will fulfill it. We were all once lost and we were all once dead in our sin. Slaves to this cold, broken and untrustworthy world where people are just seeking self. We all needed saving from it, and so do they. But here's the question, how do we live before him? Some of Jesus' first words to his followers after he ascended from the grave, before he went to be back with the Father, are found in Acts 1.8. These were the last physical words of Jesus on the planet before he went to be back with the Father. He said, you'll be my witnesses, better translated, you'll be my martyrs, because he's talking to the apostles, and the entire New Testament was paved in their blood, let me be clear, unto Jerusalem, your present city, Judea, Samaria, and all ends of the earth. Matthew 28 again, it says, then Jesus came to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Listen to this part that we overlook so often, it's probably the most important part to me of the Great Commission. Because how many of you have heard this? This is not new information. You've heard the Great Commission before. Hands raised, okay. How many of you have thought that you weren't supposed to do that? Like how many of you thought that, that this was reserved for professional ministers, ministers solely? Yeah, no, this is for all of us. In verse 20, it says, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. Well, here's the thing. He said, teach them as I've taught you. What did he teach us? What did he teach us? Matthew 22, speaking to the Pharisees as of inquiry to the greatest commandment, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all, your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, first and greatest commandment. And then he said, the second commandment is just as much like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hangs on these two commandments. So this is what we're to do when we go. When we are to go and make disciples, we're to share with one another in the lost world what the Bible says about himself, that he alone is the only way to be sucked out of this selfish and skeptical and this enslaved existence that is spiraling downward. And it's a daily, like in the here right now, suffering. 
but it's also to suffer separation for him from him forever in the hereafter, in hell. We know that. And too often I believe that we have presented the gospel as fire insurance from there, but that assumes that they aren't suffering now. Let me ask you a question. I don't wanna assume too much. How many of you were suffering before Jesus? I was, and he was the only thing that I had and the only thing that brought me out of a life that was completely consumed by myself. Once we share, that we are to, once we've had it shared to us and we share with others, with each other, we spur one another on to loving and deeds that we're to teach people to worship him by loving him with their entirety because that's what we do. We love him with our entirety. We don't hold back anything, not 99%, 100. And we're to 100% equal to the first one, lift others' needs above ourselves. How many of you say that's really easy to do? No, it is the call of Jesus starkly opposite that the world has trained you in, but that's what it's called. In fact, it says, I'm gonna give you my third point. We go to love them because he came to love us. We go to love them because he came to love us. In John 13, 35, Jesus actually made it simpler. He took the, the first and second greatest commandments and he condensed them into one. John 13, 35, he said, love others like I've loved you, period. Make it simple. He goes, let me just make this as plain as I can. If you can't see everyone as your neighbor, like, cause I taught that in the Good Samaritan. If you can't see that, then here's what I want you to do. Just look around you at everyone you see and I want you to love them like I loved you. And how did he love us? The cross is evidence of that. How did he love us? He gave up his life and he gave up his rights. He gave up his desires. He gave up his wants so that we could be ransomed to the father and we could be in him pulled out of the slavery that is this, this sinful and skeptical world and we could have freedom. We could be alive. We could have abundant life. Amen? We could look, live in a new way. We didn't have to be selfish anymore. We could be selfless. And so... Because of that, we've been given in 2 Corinthians 5, under the words of Paul, the ministry of reconciliation. It reads like this. Since then, we know it is, the fear, it is to, what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he's committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal to the world through us. Can you think about those last words? As if God were making his appeal to a lost, broken, cold, and skeptical world through us. Let me ask you, how are we doing on that? We doing pretty good? In making Christ's appeal to the world? Let me be clear. We have no ministry of reconciliation to Jesus unless we have been reconciled to him first ourselves. So we go because we're saved. 
And then we go because they suffer. Like salvation precedes reconciliation, but once we have been saved, we can't help but share that love with others because we're talking about the new way that we found, new abundant living in him, and we go to the rest of the world. Hebrews 10.25 says this, that the day, his second return, his coming is fast approaching and it will not delay. I wanna read in full context what he said in his final words as he looked at his disciples before he ascended to be with the Father, before he left, and we now await his return. He said in Acts 1, verse six, then he gathered around him all his disciples and asked them, and they asked him, Lord, are you this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Are you at this time right here, is this gonna happen? Do we finally get to reign with you? He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses or martyrs, those who would die for this, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and all ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes into a cloud. And they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who is taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. Jesus in his, in his final earthly words laid out for us, the church, his desire and his plan and a strategy for us, his church. It was to reach our city first. Reach the city in which you inhabit. Focus here. How many of you love Nashville? How many of you love even more Mount Juliet? I wanna share with you of a friend who loves his city. I have a friend who, who moved from Florida and he lives in the state of Washington. When you think about the state of Washington, you immediately think of like dreary gray, right? Like lots of rain. Okay, he doesn't live there. He played single A ball in what is called the Tri-Cities of Washington. It's the lower Eastern right corner. And it's a desert climate. It's in the middle of, of like what they call the Washington wine country, okay? So it's desert climate, 300 days of sunshine a year, temperate climate, about four inches of snow annually, eight inches of rain annually, it's dry. Perfect for growing like crops, like apples and wine, things of that nature. And this place has about 300,000 people, okay? It's a conglomerate of three small like towns that have become like a major, a major city. There's no sky rise, it's just like a large suburb with an international airport, okay? And my friend loves it. He loves it. In fact, he's in real estate now living out there, no longer playing ball. And I asked him, how's it going? I follow him sometimes on Facebook and I was curious what it's like. He said, man, it's amazing. We are growing so much. I said, tell me about it. He said, well, with California on fire, people are trying to find a place that has a climate like theirs. And when you think Nevada's right there, uh, which is great, but they can't really like get the skiing they want. So they're coming up here to Washington. They wanna live in like the wine country of Washington and they have no state income tax. So it's like way cheaper to live up here than it was in California or Nevada. And so there's no cost, like the cost of living is way less. There's no state income tax. People get to live in the similar climate. So they're coming here in droves. I said, really? He goes, yeah, it's projected that we're gonna grow by 100,000 people in the next 20 years. So 
Like, that's pretty cool, man. That's great. That seems amazing. There's no major college there. There's no major sports team there. None of that. And so I was like, that got me thinking. So I started doing some research. I looked at what is projected for the city of New York because as goes New York, as goes the rest of the world. And Tim Keller writes, he's project, they've done some projections. They're saying that in the next 30 years, two thirds of the world's population is gonna live in major metro cities, two thirds. So that got my attention because I'm reading through Hebrews right now. Right now it's 55%. It's gonna increase by over 11%. We're gonna to move to cities. And New York, which is like, as goes New York, as goes the world. It's like the cultural epicenter to the whole world. It's gonna grow by a million in the next 30 years. It's gonna grow by a million people. So it got me thinking. What about Nashville? We've been growing at a clip of 100 people a day for the past five years. So what is our city saying is gonna happen in the next 30 years? I don't know. I can tell you what are they saying is gonna happen in the next 20 years. On the most conservative efforts, we're gonna grow by 1.3 million people in the next 20 years. Now the Tri-Cities has no major metro area, no major colleges, nothing. We do. We are a cultural epicenter to the rest of the world. We've been known as Music City USA. Everyone knows that. But did you also know we're known as the Athens to the South because we have over 100,000 college students in the region? And so we continue to have people come here. They're coming. Let me paint a picture for you what that looks like. On the most conservative effort, growing at a clip that we have, they're projecting that we will grow by 1.3 million in the next 20 years. New York will grow by a million in the next 30. As goes New York, as goes the entire world. It's probably more accurate, 1.5 will find their way to Nashville in the next year. We were just rated the number one fan base by all of ESPN for our Preds fans, because y'all are crazy. We just threw the biggest party the NFL's ever seen because of draft day, and they're wanting to bring it back here. And half the people there apparently decided we're moving here. <laughs> Hear what I'm saying? Here's the thing, what that actually looks like, where are these people going? If 1.3 are gonna come and sit and find their way here, where are they gonna go? Here, let me break down the math for you, it's pretty simple. A lot of the city thinks they're gonna move to Rutherford County, which may, may happen, that might happen. Many believe it'll go to Wilson County, I mean Williamson County, to the south, that a lot of growth will birth there. But let me ask you a question. What is the second wealthiest county in all of Tennessee? Wilson. What is the only side of the city that has tracks? Who is closest to the airport? Who has nationally recognized school systems? Who grew, who had in the last six months, three Vietnamese restaurants open in its city limits? <laughs> Uh, folks, do you know there are over 20 languages spoken in Wilson County schools right now today? Today. Do you know that the city of Nashville will grow by 20% its Hispanic population? They're literally building our city and staying. Did you know that? You want to affect the kingdom? Learn Spanish. Because we need to. Because here's what that actually looks like. Here's how that quantifies 
They're coming here. Between here and, and our other Donaldson campus, let me just put this in, in perspective. Between here and our Donaldson campus, it's projected in the next 20 years that the city of Birmingham will sit down. Between three and 400,000 people will find their way to right here in Wilson County. Between Donaldson and I'll give you Lebanon, but we're right here in the middle of all of it. That means if that is going to happen, that the, the expanse of the tri-cities of Washington that's gonna happen in 20 years will happen in the next five for us. We're growing at such a rate that the city can't catch up and the church is not ready. Hello? If we have over 20 languages spoken in our local schools, that means we've already globalized. We are vastly international. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do a stab here, okay? I'm gonna wake Nelda up for a minute. Look around you. Is that represented in this room? We had three Vietnamese restaurants open in the last six months and most of us didn't even know it. We can't continue to affect the world when we walk around with our head in the sand only focused on ourselves, barely getting ourselves to church, barely getting us through it. We're not going to reach the world, reach our Jerusalem, our Nashville, our city. We can go to all ends and we plan to. Our hope is to go there, but we have to wake up right now, right here, right where we are, because the world is coming to us in droves, faster than New York will grow in the next 30 years, we are going to welcome all these people and many of them international. How do you help? You go to their restaurants, you eat their food, you spend money in their economy. That's why they started that business. You tip well in hopes that you frequent there to earn the right to share your, the love of Jesus with them and to share the gospel with them. He came so that we could go and we go to them because he came for us, people are coming here. Are we ready? Are we willing to do whatever it takes? I hope so. Because here's the truth. As much as I wanna go, what happens when Jesus says, you know what? I'm just gonna go ahead and bring everyone to you. What does the church do and how do they respond? Do they keep doing whatever they want, Nelda? Or do we turn around and go, I'll do whatever it takes to advance the gospel right here across the street, in my school, in my neighborhood, right here, to in, in the restaurants that inhabit this place so that I can bring those who own those restaurants, international and not, to sit right here and hear the truth. I will love them unto Jesus. This requires anticipating to love them unto Jesus and intentionally changing. It's not just being self-absorbed. It's focused more on their stuff than our own stuff. It's missing, it's not missing the opportunity for mission that stands right here, right now in front of us. It's embracing it. It's trusting that we have marked ourselves as those who seek the abundant life that is available in Jesus only and we desire that for others. The day is quickly approaching and it will not delay. Let me ask you, church, can he trust us to go?
even if it's right across the street? Can he trust us to go and advance the kingdom with the love that changed the world? In conclusion, I'm going to ask this question. Are you going? Have you been going across the street? Have you been intentionally going across the street, across the aisle, across the classroom? Are you intending to go across borders and even waters that are international for the sake of the gospel? But the strategy Jesus gave us was to win this city first and practice right here in this room first before you worry about getting a passport. He's bringing the world to us. Father, we love you and we thank you. And we just ask that as we think on that reality, we think on this truth and we think on what you're doing in the midst of this cultural epicenter to the rest of the world and to the rest of the North America, we pray that you would help us as a people to trust more your son Jesus and his love for us and that we would become urgent about living in that love in a new way and sharing it with those you've brought to us. You're entrusting that kind of growth to us. May we be faithful. I pray that we would respond right now in our hearts as you wake us up in Jesus' name. Mm -hmm.